Yep. Good morning. You know, it's it's just a it's it's awesome to be here. Um, you know, when I'm worshiping up here and I see the little kids, man, I just uh, my heart just goes crazy. You know, it just just it's so exciting to see them loving Jesus and and everybody who just participates together in a family of worship. I just, ah, oh, man, it's it's exciting to me. It really is. It's awesome. Well, um, is this a little loud? I mean, it's, it sounds like I'm getting some. I don't know. I'll let you guys deal with that. You see, um, what I'm going to be sharing today is, you know, some people might wonder, you know, why in the world are we talking about this? You know, especially we've just gotten off all this, you know, what we've been de- dealing with, you know, the, uh, in the senses and so forth, and our, how we respond to the, the things of God. And, and all of a sudden, I want to start talking about, you know, creationism and evolution and, and all of that. And, um, and think, how, how, do we, how do we get there and why are we there? Well, you know, this is something, of course, that's near and dear to my heart. Anybody who knows me uh, knows that this is something that is uh, a passion, something that God's put in my heart, and I believe it's even a calling that God is, is, is you know, moving me in a direction toward. And, uh, and I also truly believe that the Word of God says a whole lot about this subject. And I also know and I also feel that there's people, if I were to actually pull individually people even in this body right now, I would, I would get different responses. And, um, and I'm hoping to, today to bring some clarity and understanding to some very challenging and difficult things. But mostly because what we're really dealing with is a clash of different worldviews. I mean, I, it, I can sit and talk about evolutionism and creationism, but really what I need to fo- start and focus on is really the, the fact that we're dealing with completely different worldviews. And I, so I need to define what a worldview is, how we, become, how we come up and get a worldview. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, does everybody have a worldview? Yes, everybody does have a worldview. And it is shaped and is formulated by things around you. And we will talk about that. But first, uh, let's just back up here. You know, so you can see, I'm going to be, obviously we know what creationism, right? I mean, if you, it doesn't take much understanding of the word of God to, to know that what God said is he, he created all things. And all things that have been created were created by him and for him. And so I don't even know that we need to go there, but what does that really look like? And how do we, how do we um, transcend that into a practical way for us today or to understand? And, and how, do we, um, how do we share that? How do we promulgate that in the community around us? And how do we believe for that? And what is it supposed to look like? And I'd like to go there. And it really boils down to, when I say evolutionism, it's really, that's more of a concise word. Um, I really should be talking about naturalism, which I have in parentheses there, because really that's what we're referring to. And because naturalism is a, is a science in itself. Because naturalism um, is, has to do with the fact that there is, everything can be explained basically by natural phenomena. That is, there's no supernatural cause for life or any observation in, earth, in the earth, okay? Basically, it boils down to that God is fiction, or if he isn't, isn't fiction, he basically may have set things in motion, but basically just left it after he created it. That's more of a theistic kind of point of view, and I'll, I'll just touch on those things in a little bit. So scientists today assume that naturalism is true, and so that all thinking must begin with that premise, so in other words, there can be no you know, you know, a creation, so to speak. Everything had to originate from some, something else. 
And of course, if you were to ask any evolutionist today, though, well, well, then how did it start? How did it all begin? They wouldn't. You could pull a thousand of them, and you'd get a thousand different answers. They all agree that evolution is the reason we're here, but they can't explain you how we got here. You know, it's kind of funny, isn't it? I mean, even some of the prominent ones will say, "Well, it must be some from some you know alien life source." I mean, I'm serious. I mean, people have even spoken that. And it is just crazy the kind of answers that you get. So, but the thing is, evolution has to be at the, at the heart of naturalism. Because without evolution, there's no way to explain life, right? I mean, so that obviously evolutionism is at the heart of this. And the same idea extends then to the age of the universe and the earth. Because without vast, vast, vast amounts of time even from an evolutionist point of view, that we can't exist today, okay? And so these things have to be dealt with. A big problem today, though, is the fact that, and you wonder why we are dealing with this clash of cultures, is the fact that the church has been lukewarm in teaching the truth about creation. And the reason the church has been lukewarm is because there's been a tremendous amount of confusion in the church, you know, I've been around, I've been, I go to meetings every year, and um, I talk to other believers. There's even an organization, a national organization called the, um, it, what is it, it's the uh, faculty, or the Christ, Geoscience Christian Fellowship or something like that. I forget exactly what it's called. But they hold meetings every year at the annual Geological Society of America, which is one of the biggest meetings of geoscientists, uh, certainly in this country. And, um, and if you go to those meetings, and I have, I, I leave very, uh, what do I say, um, discouraged. Because universally, they all might be saying, you know, that, that Jesus is their Lord. And I, I don't deny that. And they all might be saying that God created them. But what that looks like is very different between what they think that, that is and what I think that is. And furthermore, they're all old earth. If they are creationists, they're all old earth creationists. They believe the earth is as old as geoscientists say it is, and I'll get into that. And so we diametrically, we go in different directions at that point. And I'm going to show it to you today unequivocally that the earth is young. And I know that some of you today might have a hard time with that because of what you've been taught, because of your worldview. And we need to begin with that. You know, it didn't help that just two weeks ago, the Pope came out, you may have heard this, or that the Pope came out in favor of evolution, said that, you know, he, he supports evolution, even human evolution. Can you believe that? The Pope. And you wonder why we have a clash of cultures. You wonder why the church has not made inroads or made a difference in our culture today in this area. There's no agreement. There's no agreement. The church has been passive. You know, students today struggle mainly because, and I think I, for many years myself, I struggled because, not because of um, my, my faith, but about the old earth aspect. I've never really been an, an evolutionist ever since I've been a believer. But I have, through many, many years, struggled with the old earth idea. And I think that I understand how today, why that is. But when God really got a hold of, of me, 
and begin to show me the truth of his word, it becomes so clear. The revelation was spectacular to me, just spectacular. And now I know that I know that I know. But I know that students struggle today because they, can think, they think this. They think, how can the vast numbers of scientists that have studied earth science for all these years, for all these decades, even centuries, thousands, and with hundreds of thousands, even millions of publications on this subject, how could they all be wrong that the earth is, you know, extremely old? And so because of that, I think that, you know, the, the authority that, that academia and these kind of people bring forth, the students just sit there and they just go, they have, they're in a dilemma, right? They might come in in a university with faith and understanding, and I've seen this over and over again. They come in, you know, on gung-ho for Jesus, and they leave atheists. I've seen it. Why is that? Again, it's this clash of cultures, because they think that these, all these people must be right, and it's wrong. They're not right. They are wrong because they begin with a false premise. Let me just give you one, one reason why that is. Because, again, naturalists believe that today when we see observations in the earth, they think that everything we see today has basically occurred at the same rate throughout all of history, all of geologic history. The things that we observe today are just, you know, have gone on for all, you know, all time. And if certainly, if you were to take that viewpoint, then certainly you would come to the conclusion that the earth was old. But that's a false premise. You know, the truth is, really, during the flood, and I'm not going to have anywhere near any time to talk about the scientific aspects, I'm not, not today. But during the flood, it was an amazingly complex, cataclysmic events that occurred so dynamically in the earth that you know, really, the earth is right now settling down still from that period of time. And so what we are seeing today is just remnants of what occurred during the flood. But I'm, I'm not going to focus on that right now. You know, it's interesting, again, a clash of cultures. To just give you an idea, you know, back in the mid-1500s, uh, Nicholas Copernicus, maybe some of you know or have heard of him, you know, proposed that the earth revolved around the sun. That's a heliocentric um, point of view, that the earth revolved around the sun. At that time, the, science, the general science community believed in a geocentric viewpoint, which is basically that the sun revolved around the earth, that everything, you know, that, that, was, that was what everybody believed. And so when he came up with this idea, you know, basically people shot it down. But then Galileo, using his own telescope, came and, and, and validated that concept and that idea, that indeed, you know, the earth was revolving around the sun. And the scientists at that time actually went to the Pope and said, he needs to recant this. This is ridiculous. Why? It wasn't the right worldview. It was a different worldview. And, and that's the same thing that we're dealing with today. You know, it's interesting, though, just to say a side note, I really believe if there's really a lot of evidence to suggest that the Earth, though, is at the center of the universe. And that's fascinating to me. That's fascinating. I mean, just the ramifications of that alone. Well, we can, let's move on for the second slide, Daniel. <laughs> All right. All right. So we're really moving on. 
Robbie, are you ready for a long one? No, I'm just kidding. That's an inside joke, inside joke, Robbie. Anyway, um, the foundation of our worldview. Let's read this. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. You know, the Greek word philosophy here um, comes from the compound word meaning the pursuit or, uh, or love of wisdom, okay? And so everybody has this, uh, everybody has a philosophy. Everybody in life has a philosophy. And I will argue that then there's, if the word philosophy refers to a governing world view, because there are two kinds of wisdom in the world, according to the scriptures. Two. There's not hundreds. There's two. And as a result, you will see that there's two governing worldviews. So let's move on in the next slide and let's look at these. And we'll come back a little bit to some of these things in that particular scripture. So in James 3, 13 to 17 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior and deeds in the gentleness of what? Wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. And natural there simply means of the soul or mind or worldly minded. So there's a definitely an earthly, worldly minded, demonic kind of wisdom whose fruit is basically jealousy and selfish ambition. And I'll tell you, being in academia, selfishness and selfish ambition and jealousy are the middle name of academia. It's their middle name. It's all about selfish ambition. I mean, it's all about self-promotion, egos, and, that's, and jealousy. It just, it's rampant. I mean, it's just, it just, you could just throw an academia in here. But the wisdom from above is first pure. It's without sin. Peaceable, gentle, reasonable. <laughs> reasonable. Wow, I love that one. Full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. Wow. Let's move on to the next slide. It's another good scripture here. So, yet we do not speak of wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age or of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Now, who are the rulers of this age? You know, in my environment, the rulers are the people who are teaching kids. They're the people who have influence, people who have authority. That's what it's referring to. So the rulers of this age, they're passing away. We're not speaking of that kind of wisdom. But we speak a wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages of of our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers, none of them, has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You know, he's speaking of the time when Jesus was crucified, but today, realistically, Jesus is crucified every day at the university in what is being taught because of the, the belief system, because, again, of a clash of worldviews. And I think the first Corinthians verse is on there too. Let's read that together. It says, says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. You know, and it really, really took a revelation from the Lord for me to really understand that, 
to really see what is being taught is utter foolishness. You know, when you get enlightened by the power of God, by the Holy Spirit, and you, then you start hearing the things that are being taught as truth, you just go, wow. It's just, it's unbelievable. You know, it's, it's just really, truly unbelievable. So, you know, clearly the Word teaches us here that there are two distinct types of wisdom, right? There's two. There's not hundreds. And if the wisdom is the foundation of a worldview then there are only two true worldviews. You know, we can have different flavors maybe, but, you know, there's basically vanilla and chocolate, and you can have chocolate with, you know, fudge in it and with, you know, cookies and all of that, but it's still chocolate. You know, there's two different types of, of worldviews. One is from above, and one is of the earth. One is divine, inspired, one is demonic. One is inspired by the Spirit for revelation and understanding in truth. The other is formulated by godless man's own knowledge, experiences, and even his fantasies. One is pure and one is corrupt. One is heavenly and full of good fruit. One is earthly, soulish, and demonic, and full of bad fruit. That's really what it boils down to. There's two worldviews. Which worldview do you have? Let's then look at what wisdom is. Let's go on to the next slide here. And this is kind of how I've defined wisdom based on the scriptures. This is my version. Okay. It says, wisdom is the filter. Okay. The filter or heart through which we process information and experiences and forms the foundation then of our worldview. Okay, and if there's two different kinds of wisdom, what does that mean then? Then you're going to ultimately end up with two different kinds of worldviews, right? So our interpretation and conviction then of natural observations, things we go out, what a scientist does is observes natural phenomena. And that what? He interprets those phenomena based on his worldview. Okay? It's, everything is based on the framework. You think that scientists are not biased, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But it's, it's not that way. Wisdom does not have to do with the facts or knowledge about things, such as how something works, you know, how a motor works or something like that. That's, you know, those, are, those, are, uh, those are skills that you gain. That's knowledge. That has nothing to do with wisdom, per se. Okay? Now, you can gain facts and understanding that help formulate your, you know, what you believe and how you believe. But again, wisdom is the filter by which we process information. It's a heart issue. This is why two people can interpret observations completely differently. It, and a perfect example is the Grand Canyon. And I'm not going to, again, go into all of this, but... You know, the question is, is, did the Grand Canyon take hundreds of millions of years for that Colorado River to cut through all that sediment, or did it happen extremely fast in a matter of one or two months? And if you actually look at the evidence, and you're not biased, you come to the absolute conclusion that it occurred within a month or two of time. It had to happen that way. There's no way in the world you would get the, the, the shape there's no way in the world you would get the formations, the, the things that are observed and, uh, with a very long period of time. And I could go on and on and on. And I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to go into all that. But it's, well, the point being is that 
It's just how what? Two different worldviews look at things. If you are, have the worldview that every, the earth is ancient, you can come to a, a vastly different conclusion and even be deceived by the observations. All right? And that's the point I'm, tr- I'm trying to make here. So how we live our lives and how we believe is based on the things which we've learned and how we've processed information in our hearts. So we all have a worldview. You know, when we, come as, when we become believers, we do see things differently. But it doesn't mean that instantaneously that everything that all of a sudden that you believe everything that all that programming that you might have gotten in college or high school all of a sudden goes away. It, it can take time for that to happen, and it certainly did even for me, as I told you. I mean, I was an old earth person for a long time, and I would read you know, Christian stuff about old earth, people who are trying to convince us that the earth really is old. And, uh, you know, and I, 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 right today I pity those men because they're trying to, again, appease their colleagues, and yet still be Christians. To me, it's like, it's almost like uh, what Jesus talked about, or John talked about, I guess, in the book of Revelation, about being lukewarm. I mean, I, I think it's just like that. That you, you, you have to be hot or cold. You can't go down the middle. So in reality, again, there's only two worldviews. And again, God can be shaping your worldview like he did with, with me. Um, you know, the, sadly, I still have colleagues who I, I try to reason with, and yet, you know, they just won't, they won't hear it because they are just so, um, they still have this mindset this, that is still, uh, this worldview that is still, you know, they can't accept it, even though the, even though the observations and the facts would, would suggest otherwise. You know, when Paul, in, in that, that, first, that Colossians verse earlier, you know, Paul was warning us about the philosophy of men. And the empty, he's talked about empty deception because it's based on the traditions of men. That's exactly what evolution is. You know, evolution is a philosophical construct. You know, it's nothing more than that. It's a religion. It's a religion. Because you, you, it's, it's formulated by men um, who, who, who think that that's how our origins or how we, you know, came to be. So it's a religion. But it's an absolute false religion. It's based on deception. It's from the pit of hell. And it talked about, remember, there's two worldviews. One is heavenly and one is, what, demonic. There, there is no, there's no middle of the road. There is no middle of the road. The, tra- the traditions of men, I mean, you can talk about law or whatever you want to talk about, but they're, they're deceived. You know, the biggest way the enemy can deal with, or, you know, the only power he can really have over us is deception. And so men can be easily deceived if they don't know the Lord. And because these, these traditions gain traction, because there's largely been little resistance again by the church, we've not resisted. Um, you can go all the way back to the Scopes trial back in the 1920s. I mean, again, I'm not going to take the time to go into all that. But it's just a crazy thing how we just have allowed over the decades for this stuff to just be, you know, accepted. And it has polluted even the church today. And that's why I think it's important to talk about it. So 
the reigning philosophy in our schools today is obviously it must be this way because that's what all the scientists are saying. This is how we become, again, greatly deceived. Again, science has given way to a, a mindset, to a corrupt worldview, rather than to sound science. And I say this because, um, you know, sound science is no longer really accepted. You know, even in the National Academy of Sciences, they talk about the fact that they really only accept incremental changes. You know, science that, it, that it incrementally changes. Well, if there's only going to be incremental change, obviously it can't be a completely different worldview that they're going to accept, right? You know, and when I got, um, you know, called, quote, into the principal's office, you know, after, you know, after teaching young earth stuff and creationism in my class, um, you know, the, the, the department head basically said to me, um, this can't be right, it's not old earth. I mean, doesn't that say it all? It really, because, you're, again, think of the mindset. I mean, it, it's just like, it's just black and white to me. I mean, you, they won't listen to anything other than this, and that's why they're saying only incremental changes are accepted, because it's, and if it doesn't fall within these parameters, it's simply not accepted. And I can even argue that with the whole thing with, you know, global warming, climate change, and all that, too. It's the same idea. Same thing's going on there. So what's really going on is, the next slide, let's look at this, is bias. It's, you know, there's, science has become incredibly biased. And in fact, if I were to ask my colleagues, are you biased? Oh, no. Heck no. Are you kidding me? They think they're the most, you know, that's why they're scientists, so that we can tell the truth. They're the most biased people I've ever come across. It's unbelievable. Bias is prejudice in favor or against one thing, and that's what they do. They favor one thing. It's this old earth, this is the way it is, evolution is the truth, and if you're opposed to that, we don't want anything to do with you. And that's basically what they told me. Okay? So... Um, so it, it, is it considered unfair? Yeah, I think it's unfair. Have I been treated unfairly? Sure, I have. I mean, and is it easy to become bitter? Well, it could be easy to become bitter. But when you realize the big picture of things, it's just more laughable than anything else. You know, it really is. Um, you know, our interpretations of observations are based on our worldview. That's what it comes down to, as I've been trying to point out. So if, if scientists then process their observations and make analyses on the basis of only one worldview, then the conclusions are obviously going to be biased. Right? And the two worldviews that exist are completely mutually exclusive. You know, that's why I think that I don't like the word, quote, creation science, because it, I think it's gotten hammered for all the wrong reasons. I mean, sometimes for the right reasons, because there's been some bad creation science. Don't get me wrong. But... Um, but the thing is, we, you know, we're the only ones, I think, that objectively look at both sides and weigh both sides and look at the observations from both sides. Whereas, you know, the evolutionists do not. They just blow us off and they consider, I mean, there's a, there's a, a huge culture even within evolutionism and, and academia to, to kill anything to do with creationism, just to kill it, to put a, you know, put a sword to it. And it's, it's uh, very outward, you know, in, in the way they do that. So, again, 
our, our, you know, it, it, we have to stress that the worldview has nothing to do with you know, scientific facts in themselves or observations. But it's how we interpret them. And our worldview absolutely dictates how we interpret them. You know, I, I always, we, every week, every Friday in our department, we have seminars. And, uh, and I listen to these seminars. And um, so, I mean, sometimes I, I sit in the back so people don't see me roll my eyes. Um, because it's just sometimes amazing to me. Just to give you an example, like, you know, old earth scientists believe that the earth for a long period of time in ancient history was all molten. And um, all the evidence points against this. I mean, there's things like, first of all, if the earth was molten for any period of time, that's how they think, that, of course, the layers, in, you know, the earth is layered. Um, but they think that's how the earth became layered. Well, if that were the case, then why are there still heavy metals in the crust? Why would we still have gold and, you know, and all these kind of things in the crust if the earth were molten? All that stuff would have sunk, right? There's other things, zircons and things that, you know, suggest otherwise. And yet you listen to these things and they argue they sit and try to come up with ways to overcome the observations that point against their belief system. And so they make stuff up. And everybody just accepts that and applauds it. Good job. Rather than taking the path of least resistance that would, you know, the, the simplest explanation, they take the complex one and make stuff up so that it fits their worldview. That's what we've come to. That's what we've come to. I want to show you a picture. Next slide. Give you an idea of a worldview. This is a map, a world map. Can everybody see that? It is an equal area map, meaning that the areas between each latitude and longitude are accurately shown within that. But the latitude longitude lines, because now we're taking a sphere and making it into a map, you know, it looks distorted. But it's called an equal area projection. Well, the projection isn't really important here. The question is, how does this affect your worldview? Does your worldview say, well, this is wrong? Unless you're from Australia. You, then you probably love it, right? But what does this mean? You know, south is to the top. That's not right. That violates my worldview. And it probably does. When you first look at that, you go, that's not right. Because why? Because you learn that north is up. But in the scheme of things, who said? Why is that, is that, is that any more scientifically correct than this? No. If you're in space, the earth, there's no such thing as north or south in space. The earth is, you know, out there, but, you know, there's no east, west, north, or south in space. Okay? So this is just as right accurate as any other map that where the north is up. But again, it's our worldview, right? But the scientific facts do not deny that this is true. And that's the thing that we have to get to. That just because it doesn't look right doesn't mean it isn't right. That's what Galileo came across. This is, wow, everybody says that the earth is, you know, at the center. You know, the sun's revolving around the earth. But that's not what I see. We've got to get to that place. We need to move on so that I don't, so Robbie doesn't get mad at me. We're, okay, is he here? Oh, okay, all right, thank you. So what is evolutionary theory? This is the stuff that's taught. 
in your schools, and this is another reason why I think it's important, because as you as parents or you as students, I know a lot of the students like to sit over in this section, the students, you're going to get this stuff, and you need to be prepared, because this is what's taught at a very young age, beginning, I think, in eighth grade, if you eighth, eighth grade earth science. This is the stuff that they start teaching in the public schools, that life began from a single ancestor spontaneously by chance, which, of course, has never been able to be proven or can't be done in the laboratory as much as they've spent billions of dollars. You know, billions, billions of dollars of National Science Foundation money are spent every year on trying to find the origin of life. Your tax dollars, okay? Just, you know, if that doesn't make you hot, Ted Dean, I know Ted, okay. Um, okay, from a, a single inorganic molecules to organic molecules, approximately 3.8 billion years ago, all right? That's taught as fact, not as a theory, that is taught as fact. Next, that one's environment causes an animal or any life form to inherit characteristics to adapt to its surroundings, all right? It's, called, it's like referred to as natural selection. And then that through enough time, animals acquire traits and become increasingly complex through natural selection and mutation. All right? Those are taught as facts. That's all the foundation of evolutionary theory. All right? A recent statistic revealed that 80% of Bible-believing Christians who enter university believing in creationism become evolutionists after their first year of college. 80%. And again, because of what? Authority. Because people who, you know, oh, can, they, can they all be wrong? You know, any geology textbook you will find at a university will tell you unequivocally that the Earth is 4.54 billion years old, without question. And this is based largely on two different things. One is radiometric dating. And again, I can, I can sit here, there's three different fundamental things that are completely wrong with the way people have interpreted or done radiometric dating or the assumptions they've made. And I'm, again, I'm, I don't have time to go into any of that. And the other one is evolution. And since it's interesting, very interesting to note that from the time of Darwin, back in the mid-1800s, it was recognized, again, that if evolution was to have any chance of succeeding, any chance from the evolutionists, then it would require vast amounts of time for that to happen. And if you were to actually look at a graph, and I should have put it up here, actually, of the, the, the um, expected or the perceived age of the Earth at different times in history, after evolution, or after Darwin came up, came out with the evolution or the uh, evolution of the species, um, that the age of the Earth just skyrocketed exponentially. You think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. It had to happen for them in order for their model, their worldview, to fit. Well, there's four things that I'm going to talk about very briefly, except for time. Next one. I've got to watch the time here. There's four foundational things that evolutionary theory is based on. Time, clearly time is important. Natural selection, mutation, and something, if you're not a scientist, uh, superposition, which is really basically the perceived increased co complexity in the fossil record. That basically layers on top are younger than the ones below. And so you see organisms that appear more ancient or more um, less complex in the lower stratum than they do in higher stratum, okay? 
And those are the four things that they depend on. All right? So time, and I'm going to spend most of the time talking about time, the time that I have. <laughs> um, but, you know, time is not on the side of the evolutionist. You know, we see from a biblical perspective, you know, in, in a moment, but even chemically and physically, I mean, it just doesn't fit. You know, there are 100 trillion cells in a human body. Each of those cells has 60,000 proteins and over 100 amino acids. If anything even remotely goes wrong with any one aspect of that in any cell, such as the DNA or the protein or amino acids, that cell immediately begins to die. Ultimately, they all die. So how can a cell that lives a single lifetime, let's say in, a, in, a, in some animal, take on evolutionary change? See, the thing is, this is the deception. Because they, they, the evolutionists will tell you, but it happens over billions or millions, hundreds of millions of years. But no, that cell doesn't live that long. It doesn't have time to take on change. It only lives for a very short period of time. So it can't even do that. The second law of thermodynamics everybody knows, basically, I think. You've probably heard it. You know, that everything is heading in a direction of decay and disorder. That's, the second, that's, a, that's a law. Not order, not complexity. And of course, they just ignore that. Evolutionists ignore that idea completely. I'm going to talk more about time in a moment because I think time's really important. That's really what I wanted to focus on today. Um, but let me just give you an example of natural selection and then mutation really quickly, and then we'll move forward. So evolutionists would have you believe that traits um, can be, you know, inherit or lost through, through their surroundings and environment. Um, if it, it, it is true that animals can, uh, that certain traits can be eliminated. For example, if there are two varieties of bears living in the Arctic in a snowy environment, okay, and one has dark gray fur and the other has white fur, the white fur bears would, have, would tend to survive better than the bears with gray fur because they would uh, not be so easily spotted when hunting for their prey, and then they would therefore not starve. So over time, the gray bears would become eliminated from the environment because ultimately they would starve over time. However, the white-furred bear, it's still a bear. All right? No new species has been created. No complexity has been added. So natural selection can remove a trait but no new information or genetic complexity results from natural selection. What, what evolutionists tell you is just, oh, I can't even say it, okay? Mutation. The whole idea of mutation came about from when they observed fruit flies, I mean, thousands of fruit flies, and over time of, you know, spawning new fruit flies, I mean, some, some of their eyes became like albino eyes, apparently. They've got white eyes. And they said, aha, they can change. Yeah, their eye color changed by, a, by a, you know, some damage to their DNA that caused them to become albino eye, but they're still a fruit fly, okay? It was an accidental mutation. And mutations are generally a bad thing, Okay? You know, it would take billions of positive mutations 
for evolution to produce, you know, any kind of a, a living animal. Billions of positive ones, all happening, you know, just perfectly for that to happen. And it, that's just can't, that just doesn't work. Furthermore, mutations do not create more complex species. You know, it's interesting that actually evolutionists believe that a land animal had turned into a blue whale. Okay? I mean, they believe that. Of course, that land animal still exists, so explain that to me. I mean, but in order for that to happen, many body changes obviously would have to occur. You know, they never tell you the fact that if it was a land animal, that foot that turned into a fin would first have to become a bad foot before, you know, it became a bad fin before it became a good fin. And it would have to be millions of years as a bad foot before it turned into a bad fin and spent millions of years as a bad fin that didn't work before it became a good fin. They don't tell you any of that. But you know, realize how many proteins and related amino acids and DNA that for each body part to convert from a land you know, function to an, uh, an ocean function, the different chains of DNA and letter sequences that would have to occur in a specific order, exactly perfectly to happen, is exactly one over the number 1,149, followed by 1,577 zeros. That is the odds. Now, a statistician will tell you that anything over from to the power 50, one to the power 50, is statistically impossible. This is uh, orders, and I mean, beyond, beyond, beyond that. In fact, you would have better odds of winning the Powerball lottery every year for the next 200 years <laughs> than the chances of an animal evolving into a whale. Okay? Whew. All right. Um... I'm going to, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over this, this stuff on superposition, uh, but it's good stuff. So let's go, let's skip this. Um, let's move on. Because uh, this is really, that's really good though. I hate skipping it because it's really good. But um, yeah, let's, let's go here. So is that the one? Yeah. The age of the earth. You know, the Bible is, is not, quote, a science book, but it is an amazingly, perfectly accurate history book. So we get snapshots in time of events and hints of what transpired in chronological sense. You know, clearly there is much controversy over the length of time contained in Genesis 1. You know, and I was at that place for, for years myself. So consequently, many 